Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss the role of neoadjuvant therapy for stage three non-small cell lung cancer using a virtual tumor board format. This area has become increasingly complex of late as we've seen several large studies report encouraging results with perioperative immunotherapy and targeted therapy. To help analyze this resectable stage three space, I'm joined by a thoracic surgeon and a medical oncologist, both with a lot of experience in this field. Our surgeon today is Dr. Linda Martin, professor of surgery, chief of thoracic surgery at the University of Virginia. Dr. Martin's also one of the co-chairs of the 2024 World Conference on Lung Cancer that's planned for September 2024 in San Diego. So make sure you mark your calendars. Linda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm also joined by thoracic medical oncologist, Dr. Yair Barr, associate professor at Tel Aviv University, head of thoracic oncology and deputy director of the Institute of Oncology at Sheba Medical Center, past chair of the Israel Lung Cancer Group. Yair, thanks for being with us today. Hi, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to discuss stage three non-small cell lung cancer, but you know, before we begin, I'd love to hear about the actual tumor board at your institution. This is something that maybe a, a lot of Patients don't realize, but we, we really do discuss cases as a group to come to consensus, to hear different perspectives. Linda, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the tumor board at UVA? You know, how often do you meet? Who's there? And, and what kind of cases do you discuss? Uh, sure. Yeah, we meet every week for an hour and we review <clears throat> typically eight to 15 or so patients every week. Uh, we've got chest radiology experts, path, uh, lung pathology we have usually several medical oncologists, thoracic surgeons, interventional pulmonary, um, our nurse practitioner teams from all of those areas. And, you know, again, sort of a full multidisciplinary complement of people present. And we review cases prospectively as much as we possibly can, either before we do an intervention such as a biopsy or an operation, and then surgical pathology, as well as stage four cases. And we talk about really what's the best management strategy so that we have a consensus for our patients. So it's a really nice collaborative environment and I think been very helpful, especially with the changing environment in lung cancer care. I think it's really important for for lung cancer because it does require a whole team of different expertise to, to really provide optimal care. And I think, you know, lung perhaps more than others uh, really does require a lot of coordination. A year, what about at Sheba? Do you have something similar? Yes, basically, uh, more or less, uh, as Linda described, uh, we meet uh, weekly with all the team. Uh, I have to say the pathologists are not join, joining us in this meeting. We have a separate meeting with the pathologist, but besides that, it's exactly the same format. Now, let's go into uh, this hypothetical case. We have a 62-year-old male who was found incidentally to have a three and a half centimeter right lower lobe lung mass. This patient actually was in the car accident and imaging at that time is where they noted the lung mass. So no symptoms. The PET scan was done that showed uptake in the lung mass, but nowhere else. So he was referred for biopsy by his primary care doctor. What was ordered was a CT guided needle, uh, needle biopsy and that showed lung adenocarcinoma. 
He was then referred to our multidisciplinary lung cancer clinic. So we arranged for bronchoscopy and EBUS uh, really to, to better stage the mediastinum. And that did reveal ipsilateral R4 lymph nodes. So we have a T2A, N2, M0, non-bulky stage 3A, lung adenocarcinoma. So let me just pause here. Linda, when we saw this patient, they had a diagnosis of lung cancer. There was no uptake or enlarged adenopathy on the PET scan, but we decided to do a bronchoscopy and EBUS. Can you comment on the role of EBUS when lymph nodes are not enlarged or PET avid? Uh, yes, that's an important issue. So it sounds like you were looking to prove a negative mediastinum, and it turns out it was not a negative mediastinum, but it drives home the point that the criteria for invasive mediastinal staging that I follow is any tumor over three centimeters, a more centrally located tumor, no matter the size, if there's multiple lesions, or if it's an unusually high FDG uptake, sort of out of proportion to what you'd expect, that those are all reasons to go looking and actually sample mediastinal lymph nodes by EBUS or uh, mediastinoscopy or whatever method. And so the, it's a good thing that you did that and found what's clinically a cult N2 disease, but you certainly are going to be able to offer more focused therapy by doing so. You know, our criteria are very similar, and, and this is a step that I think is often skipped. You know, we don't want to rush into to an operation necessarily uh, without knowing exactly what we're up against. Yeah. I was just going to say too, you know, with when you're looking to prove a negative mediastinum, it's important to pay attention to your local expertise and that with EBIS, if you've got a very experienced team of interventional pulmonologists or surgeons that do a lot of them, I think you can rely on a negative result in a clinically negative mediastinum. But if someone's less experienced, their yield might be lower and you may need to think of something like mediastinoscopy or something more invasive to prove a negative mediastinum. But it sounds like in this case, you have skilled operators and they got a good result, but that's just something to bear in mind when you're trying to show that it's negative as opposed to proving a positive, which is often easier. Really important point because EBUS is not available in all corners of the globe. And so you know, I think it's just the, the act of knowing if the mediastinum is involved, but there are different tools. Does mediastinoscopy play a large role in staging uh, in your practice now? Not so much now. I used to do quite a bit more, but I've got a really good pulmonary team now that is experienced and very responsive. When we ask their help with uh, staging of patients, they're able to get them in right away. And so that's another thing to factor in is if there's an inordinate delay to get something done, you might have to switch gears. But I feel like I'm doing much fewer mediastinoscopy, so much so that my fellows are worried about checking the boxes on their case numbers because we just don't do mediastinoscopy hardly ever anymore. Yeah, you're any different approach to mediastinal staging at Sheba and Another question there, when do you order an MRI of the brain? Basically, the we follow the same guidelines. I have to say these guidelines have uh, some ambiguity. For example, what is a, a central versus a peripheral lesion? There's no consensus on that and, and various definitions exist. So uh, it's it's usually mentioned that if it's in the outer third and, and smaller than three centimeter, you can uh, skip the mediastinal staging. But what is really an outer third? There's no definition. What do you think about this, Linda? Do you, what definition do you use? How do you look at that? I, I agree with you looking at things like outer third versus middle or inner third. Uh, sometimes that's a little bit hard to, to clearly define. 
So that's also where I think a tumor board conversation can come in uh, if it's a borderline concern is to talk it over as a team and see if it makes sense to do mediastinal staging. I agree. Um, and for us, we also use eBus. We we try to to uh, to get uh, definite results. Basically, it's it's worthwhile mentioning that uh, for a negative node sampling, you need to have uh, evidence that the node was sampled. So you need lymph node cells, lymph lymph lymphoid cells in the specimen to be sure that the the negative result is really reliable. But Another thing I wonder about, and I'd be happy to hear your opinion, Linda, when you have uh, lymph nodes that seem positive and the uh, EBUS is negative, what do you do then? You go ahead for a mediastinoscopy or do you repeat the uh, EBUS or do I you would... trust the imaging? If it's very <laughs> I would generally go ahead with mediastinoscopy in that situation. It hasn't happened lately, but in previous years, that was a more common scenario that we had a negative result and would go ahead. What's been a little tricky is we've had some cases where Hyler and one nodes looked abnormal and yet the EBIS was negative. And then we're stuck with trying to decide if we go to the operating room or not, or give neoadjuvant with, with a say stage two patient. And that is a situation where you can't reach it with mediastinoscopy and it's more of a operate or don't operate. Um, that's another topic, but uh, that's the scenario I found to be more challenging of late. Yeah, I agree. I, um, in general, uh, I find that many EBUS performers do not routinely sample the Hyler nodes like the standard i think in from my impression in many places is just sample the 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 2 and 4 uh, rnl and 7 and 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 not necessarily the hyla nodes but now i think especially since we have the new adjuvant option for stage 2 this becomes uh, really critically important in many cases well i think that uh, part of it you know we're talking about our, our pretest probability and do you believe a negative result, assuming, as you mentioned, yeah, you're that it is diagnostic, that you actually got the lymph node. And, you know, at the tumor board, we're talking to our pathologist, is there some other reason why, you know, this would be active on PET, why this is enlarged? And if we see non-caseating granulomas, for example, maybe that gives us a reason as to why those nodes are, are positive to go forward. But, but it's a good point. None of the tests are perfect. And, and that's why these multidisciplinary tumor boards where you're reviewing the images, reviewing the pathology, are so critical to, to really laying out the best options. Yeah, what about MRI of the brain? Is that required for everybody? I, I don't see that done a, a, as often as I'd like. I agree. I generally send all of the lung cancer patients for a brain MRI. There are various guidelines about this, which are not really evidence-based as, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, it's basically a matter of, of cost. There's no risk to the patient in doing an MRI. And if you find a brain lesion, it, it makes a big difference. So uh, I generally just uh, send them all for an MRI. And usually we don't have an issue with reimbursement of that or anything like that. Yeah, I think that especially in cancers that are not smoking related, a lot of those cancers have a higher tropism to the brain. So I think that's yes, an important step. I think we all know cases where you know someone went to surgery, we're seeing them afterwards and and then we order that MRI and after the fact, discover that there, there is, in fact, metastases to the brain. But let's go back to our case, uh, T2A, N2, stage 3A, uh, MRI of the brain was normal. You know, one of the first decision points is about resectability 
and operability, two different terms. Linda, can you explain to sort of the lay listener the difference between those two things? Well, this is the million dollar question these days. uh, And I get the sense that people think surgeons have this secret about who's resectable or not, and we're keeping it to ourselves, but that's not the case. Uh, But it is a, a really important question, but one that's not very easy to define and put into a guideline. The way I approach it, I think about, first of all, is the tumor technically removable? So is it Uh, Can I get an R0 resection looking at where it is, what structures may or may not be invaded, um, how much resection is going to be required? So that's one issue. But you could have a tumor that's easily resectable, but a patient who is not fit or healthy. And so you've got to look at the physiologic issues in terms of comorbidities, uh, pulmonary functions, and things like that. So that's another important piece there. And then there's also the oncologic issues and the tumor biology And is this a disease in which surgery is going to be impactful? And you could take an extreme of that of, say, small cell lung cancer that's stage two or three that, you know, you could get it out. But is that really the right tool for that disease? And are we simply delaying more uh, appropriate or definitive treatment with systemic chemotherapy? So those are all things that I think about. And I'll also point out that uh, my good friend and colleague, Biniam Kadani, wrote an absolutely excellent Twitter thread on this recently So if you look them up on, sorry, it's X, not Twitter, there's a really great discussion about the factors that go into this. What's been interesting and challenging is that with immunotherapy, we are seeing things that looked questionably resectable that now are being converted to resectability after induction therapy. That's been a goal of many of ours for years and years, and it never seemed to be achievable before. And now it does seem like a real possibility. And it raises the question if we should decide on resectability, not at diagnosis, but at different steps along the way during treatment, and maybe keep an open mind to resection in a larger group of patients. And that's fascinating because, you know, we generally in these studies that have been published and reported, resectability is determined up front, but it is a fluid concept. And maybe we need to push the the boundaries. Uh, We've always assumed that in more advanced cases, there's not a benefit to surgery, but times have changed. And, you know, converting an unresectable to resectable, I know that's a different topic, but is that something that we're actively exploring, Linda? There's an interesting trial that's about to launch, and I am an investigator on the trial with full disclosure that looks at uh, taking patients that appear to be resectable or maybe resectable and starting them down a path of chemoimmunotherapy. And then a couple cycles in having a multidisciplinary review and deciding, is this looking resectable or is it looking like it's not responding real well or sort of stable disease and then make a, a bifurcation between surgery and radiation at that point. And I, I think this is a brilliant trial design. And I think it's reflective of where we are with our management and trying to figure these things out. So the first trial I've heard of that has that sort of a design where the resectability is determined by a multidisciplinary team and after seeing response to treatment. So I feel like that's a, a direction we're likely to see more and more trials go. Yeah, you're, uh, at Sheba, in which patients are you thinking about surgery and, and does everyone there meet with a surgeon? Yeah, so I think this is really the a major issue in the in this field. Uh, as, as Linda described, the, the boundaries are changing. This our default for for stage three with the mediastinal involvement used to be chemorads as a definitive treatment, and for selected patients, consider neoadjuvant treatment and uh, 
and surgery, but now it's uh, it's shifting and and actually I think for most patients we would consider upfront not upfront but the first choice would be uh, surgery following neoadjuvant treatment. So uh, I think what we're really missing in in this field is more clear definitions of of the of the staging, more precise description of the tumor. Uh, for for looking at uh, the results of trials uh, and learning from that in an intelligent way. Because you, you look at many of the neoadjuvant trials now, you see that around 20% do not get to surgery. So you have to assume that many of them were really borderline resectable and became unresectable during the neoadjuvant treatment or just stayed unresectable but, um, as, as they were initially. So, so I think, again, an open question, we discussed these cases in in MDT. Not every patient would eventually meet a surgeon. I mean, in some cases, it's really obvious that there's no surgical option, uh, either because of resectability or because of operability. So if we decide at the MDT that this is the case, the patient would usually not meet a surgeon unless, unless he or she wants that. I, I just have a comment on that. Um, higher, I wouldn't presume that the 20% who don't go to surgery, it's all because of disease progression or unresectability. I imagine there's a lot of factors into why people don't go on to surgery. And that's probably some of the patients, but some of it could be treatment-related toxicity, patient choice. I don't think we really know, and I would love to hear from the trial investigators from some of these large studies, exactly why people didn't go on and if they can expand upon that and let us know what the reasons were for people not going to surgery, because I think there's a lot to learn there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But but I think uh, there, since, again, 20% do not get to surgery, this is very high. So I think there must be a significant uh, group that were, were not resectable. And, but we're missing the data. I agree. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of factors going into that. But I, I think it is important that for questions where we're not sure about resectability, I think that question needs to be answered by the surgeon. And so uh, certainly not something that we want others answering. Linda, let's talk about the types of surgery, though. What if resection required a pneumonectomy? Uh, you know, do you think there's still a role today for right-sided pneumonectomy in this disease? I do. You know, this has been a hot topic, and it stems from things like the intergroup. 0139 study, the Kathy Albane study on chemoradiation definitively versus chemoradiation followed by surgery, where they saw a 25% mortality with pneumonectomy, in particular right pneumonectomy. And that's probably mostly related to things like post-pneumonectomy ARDS, pneumonia, bronchopleural fistula, things like that, that led to this high mortality rate. Lots of people have published institutional series showing that it's not nearly that high and that with the right expertise and so forth, that we're probably talking about more like 10% mortality. But, you know, it makes people pause and think before they rush into that option. Without radiation up front, the risks of pneumonectomy seem to be quite a bit lower, but they're still not negligible. So it's always a, a discussion. And we sometimes talk about pneumonectomy being a disease state in and of itself, just the physiologic changes and so forth that goes with it. But I know I certainly have performed it in carefully selected patients. I wouldn't say no way we wouldn't even talk about it. 
And so far, there haven't been any major safety signals with the various neoadjuvant trials in the small proportion of patients who've had pneumonectomy. So I think in the right setting, it's still worth considering and shouldn't be sort of thrown out. But you know, again, we're also seeing some signals that fewer pneumonectomies may be required with a chemo immunotherapy induction strategy than with chemo alone. And that's encouraging and enticing to think that we may be enhancing resectability or limiting the scope of resection with a really effective neoadjuvant strategy. In this case, we're discussing today a right lower lobectomy was planned. Um, this was felt to be a resectable cancer, an operable patient. Yair, can you talk a little bit about molecular testing at this point and what's your approach at Sheba? Yes, so this varies uh, for different patients. Uh, the approach for for smokers or past smokers versus never smokers, that's uh, one important difference. Uh, for a patient who's a never smoker that we are considering adjuvant, neoadjuvant treatment, I would insist on a, on a full molecular panel. Uh, for, for smokers, I would uh, want to see EG, basically EGFR, ALK, and ROS1 and PDL1. So uh, what we usually do, we do the rapid EGFR test that takes basically one day and we do immunohistochemistry for, for the other markers uh, and, and settle with that. Uh, there's also an issue of uh, squamous versus non-squamous for squamous. Basically, it might not be necessary to do even that. Uh, so theoretically, uh, if it's a clear squamous, you know, it's not just a tiny biopsy and squamous based on uh, immunohistochemistry, then uh, potentially you can skip on, on the molecular analysis even for those few markers. But but in, pr in practice, we insist on this minimal test for all of them. Uh, is, is testing uh, at this point standard at UVA? It is. And I realize that's not true at every institution, but our medical oncology team has made arrangements with our pathologists just to test regardless of the stage or site of biopsy for, you know, essentially all of the markers and to do uh, PDG, PGDDX uh, testing with a fairly low threshold. So that way we hope to avoid delays because if it turns out that the patients have got a more advanced stage, treatment decisions can be made right away. Obviously that costs more money, but we think in the long run, it ends up being beneficial for our overall patient population. So in, in our case here, this was a patient with a, a pretty heavy smoking history. We did do testing, but for speed, we did PCR for EGFR, FISH for ALK and ROS. Those were all negative. The PDL one expression was high at 50%. Yeah, year in this driver negative, PDL one high, T2A, N2, stage 3A lung adenocarcinoma, what would your recommendation be today? So currently, I think the best evidence we have is for neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy based on the Checkmate 816 study, which includes three cycles of, of chemotherapy and, and NEVO. There is also an option of uh, giving uh, adjuvant treatment, uh, chemotherapy, and followed by adjuvant PEMBRO, but this is um, this this I think uh, really relevant only for high PDL one, so it could be relevant for this patient. If in if for some reason he, he wouldn't undergo neoadjuvant treatment, uh, but my bias is for for neoadjuvant versus adjuvant based on 
indirect comparisons and speculations and the melanoma data. Uh, so, so my choice for treatment for this patient would be the Checkmate 816 uh, regimen. Linda, how would this case be discussed at UVA? Uh, similarly, but we do have an open trial, and it's uh, a trial I'm co-PI with Jyothi Patel, the Alliance Foundation Trial 46. And so N2 positive patients get four cycles of chemo and DERVA resection and then adjuvant DERVA, and it's a phase two study we're about 10 patients away from completing enrollment on that. So we would favor trying to put them on that trial. In the absence of a trial option, again, like higher would be checkmate 816 type of regimen, but we all remain a little concerned about just those three treatments in a stage three patient that is that enough. And it's an unanswered question otherwise. Um, we have not had great success with using sort of like an Empower 10 hybrid approach postoperatively that a lot of insurance and companies won't uh, approve that. And so we struggle a little bit with what to do in stage three patients and are we treating them adequately with Checkmate 816 alone. Now, Linda, would the recommendations be different if this was a low PDL one case? Say the PDL one was like 10%, would you approach that differently? Probably not. We would still favor putting them on a trial and even with a lower PDL one. Um We've still been okay with using Checkmate 816. I think we run into some concerns using the Empower 10 strategy with low PDL1 scores. I realize that Pearl's trial has allowed for approval of an adjuvant treatment without any uh, mention or need to look at PDL1 score. But I guess our team is a little bit hesitant about the role of a strictly adjuvant strategy with a lower PDL1 score. So I, I feel like we have a lot of unknowns in this space and once again would favor putting someone on a trial because of the lack of knowledge and ways for us to improve that understanding of what's best to do here. Yeah, these are, are big questions that we don't have answers to. And you know, just for those new to the field, we have approvals in the neoadjuvant space with Checkmate 816. We have approvals in the adjuvant space with Pearls and Empower 010. But the question is, do we need both? And there are phase three studies like a GN, like Keynote 671, like Empower 030, uh, even like Nadim 2, uh, randomized studies showing, you know, good outcomes with both, but they're not comparing, you know, just one strategy versus the other. Um, and I think that's something we'll be discussing in, in quite a while. Uh, Yair, one of the concerns that a lot of people have about neoadjuvant therapy is, you know, experiencing some toxicity, some adverse event that puts the surgery in jeopardy. You know, we want to to sort of help the surgery, but not to get in the way of the surgery. Now, you've led some studies in the space. You've actually been in the space a lot longer than most. Um, and so, Yair, how safe, how tolerable are these regimens? Yes, so I, there are two issues, I think, when you're considering neoadjuvant treatment and the risk of losing a chance for curative surgery. Well, the major risk, in, in my view, is actually disease progression that uh, I'm, I'm sure is, is a potential prob problem. We need ways that we currently don't have to better predict response to the neoadjuvant treatment because some patients would progress on this treatment. And if they are borderline, they might become unresectable. So uh, again, we don't have enough evidence about that. PDL1 is actually, I think, more informative than we regard it in if you look at the subgroup analysis at the forest plot of the of several of the of the reported trials you see pdl1 is quite 
predictive of the benefit. And, and PD-L1 negative, for example, in the 816 study, uh, didn't do well in terms of, um, didn't benefit in terms of event-free survival. They did benefit in terms of pathological complete response. So, so currently we're still offering that also to PD-L1 negative patients. But, but we, again, we need better predictive markers. Uh, and um, the other issue that you've mentioned, the toxicity, that's, that's also, we're basically in the dark. We have no way currently to predict who will develop these immune-related adverse events, which some of them can be really devastating and can uh, prevent getting to surgery. It's, it's quite rare that uh, they're so bad uh, that uh, prevent surgery, but uh, significant toxicity occur overall in about, I would guess about 10% from the, from the trials. And we don't know who who would they would be. There there are studies trying to predict the risk of that, but uh, not enough uh, data. There is interesting reports of single cell RNA sequencing of uh, peripheral blood cells that can help predict the toxicity. But again, obviously, that's not anything that's close to clinical practice. So. Basically, we are in the dark, both in terms of the chance of response and both in terms of the risk of uh, significant toxicity. So uh, um, I, I'm sorry, I can't give a more uh, helpful answer. No, it's, it's you know, I think we have a lot of experience with these. We're, we're pretty comfortable with it. But, you know, Linda, I think most thoracic surgeons don't have as much experience in this space as you do. So from a surgical standpoint, what are your thoughts about the potential for neoadjuvant you know, immunotherapy? preventing the opportunity for a surgical resection or complicating it in some way? It's a concern that patients may be operable and for whatever reason, progression of disease, toxicities from therapy don't go on to surgical resection. And so far, we've seen that in about 15 to 20% of patients in multiple neoadjuvant studies. Of note, in a DEEM-2 trial, it was actually only about 7%. So Obviously, it's variable. There could be a lot of different circumstances that contribute to that. In a stage three patient, it's such a difficult disease to treat that systemic therapy is important. And I worry a little bit less about people falling off and not going to surgery in stage three. But in stage two, it it is more important because so many patients may, in fact, be cured with surgery alone. And we have to think about whether we're taking away a therapeutic intervention by having complications from neoadjuvant therapy. The flip side of that is that compliance with adjuvant therapy has historically been poor, maybe 40 to 50% complete their prescribed therapy. So you have to weigh that risk of maybe taking away surgery as an option for a patient versus maybe taking away systemic therapy that they might need postoperatively. Lots to tease out here, unanswered questions, but all of those factors need to be considered as we're helping to navigate patients through these decisions. Yeah, I think that to our colleagues designing the studies, we have newer agents, more potent agents, and you know, people ask, well, let's try this in the new adjuvant space. And to that, I, I say we really have to be sure that it's safe. We have to be very comfortable giving that, especially for a stage two, because you know, surgery is curative. And if we prevent or preclude or delay surgery in some way, we really could be doing harm. So I think it's important to keep in mind. Yeah, you're, do you repeat imaging after the patient's complete neoadjuvant therapy? Uh, and, and do you ever repeat metastinal staging? So we repeat the imaging generally before the surgery. We don't generally do repeat invasive staging of the mediastinum. 
you know, unless there would be progression of disease on the imaging, and then you need to consider your options, the, that would be a, a situation where you would want to to evaluate exactly what you're dealing with, because there have been reports, there are clear reports of uh, immune uh, flare-up of, of mediastinal nodes after neoadjuvant immunotherapy, sort of a pseudo-progression uh, that uh, can seem like exactly the same as progressive disease, but the implication is completely different. So if I would see um, growth of mediastinal nodes or, or, or hilar nodes, uh, following neoadjuvant treatment, I would request a repeat uh, sampling of those nodes. But otherwise, no, we do the scan, we make sure there's no progression, and we continue to surgery. It's a really important point here. I think that you know one of our colleagues, Dr. Tina Cascone, in, in Neostar showed you know sometimes you can have these flares and nodes, and and it, to the casual mm -hmm. eye might look unresectable, but often those are not disease and those are the patients that may benefit the most from something like surgery absolutely yeah from the neostar study linda let's talk about timing when someone completes neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy no complications scan looks good what's the optimal timing of surgery after neoadjuvant therapy it's going to vary depending on the neoadjuvant strategy so patients who've had monotherapy with immunotherapy probably two weeks or less is okay to go ahead if there was chemotherapy in the regimen, I typically wait four weeks and, and sometimes longer if they need it, but usually four weeks is about right. And when there's been radiation, I usually will wait more like six weeks. So it, that's based on trials. It's also based on personal experience in terms of tissue planes and patient readiness and fitness for surgery, uh, depending on the regimen that they had up front. Now let's go down the the path of, you know, if, if our treatment doesn't go according to plan, a year if if we complete treatment, but now this tumor is no longer resectable, let's say there is some progression, what do you do at that point? Yeah, so so these are really patients with an expected very poor outcome, those that progress on chemoimmunotherapy. But uh, we we would try to salvage them if if feasible with the uh, chemo rats, that would be one option if uh, if this if the tumor is still ca can be completely irradiated with reasonable toxicity risk alternatively if the progression is really something that's beyond the the option of uh, definitive chemo rads we would switch to systemic therapy options which are also not really not good uh, again after progressing on uh, chemo immunotherapy but uh, there are some interesting options. That's that's for another hour of discussion, if you want. <laughs> Linda, um, how do these treatments, you know, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and or chemoimmunotherapy, how does that impact the surgery? You know, and you know, I know you have a lot of expertise in robotic surgery. Is that the best approach here? It's not going to be one size fits all. Neoadjuvant chemo, usually I don't see a lot of difficulty at the hilum. Chemo radiation, for sure, I do. So far with chemoimmunotherapy, I've seen quite a variable pattern of complexity of the surgery, specifically patients that have any hilar node involvement. I found there to be quite a reactive field with a lot of fibrosis and tissue planes are not what they normally would be. But I've even had patients that had isolated N2 disease. And when I went in to do the lobe, the hilum was certainly more difficult than uh, uh, virginal or un previously treated 
resection. So it's it's variable enough that I think surgeons need to be honest with themselves about what they're capable of doing, what they can do safely and pick the right path. And I can't emphasize enough that in these locally advanced cases, we have got to do a great job with lymph node assessment and do a very thorough lymph node clean out, not only for prognostic reasons, but for therapeutic reasons. We can't really consider it an R0 resection if someone had a positive 4R node and we don't go and take that node out at the time of surgery, regardless of what the PET scan or imaging looks like. So again, that's a surgeon's having a a moment of honesty with themselves and making sure that they're doing the surgical approach that's going to yield the best cancer operation, regardless of incision. And I'll, I'll segue here briefly to say that people have this idea that minimally invasive surgery is vastly superior to open surgery. And the fact of the matter is it's not that different. And when you look at chronic pain and other things, the two are very, very close to one another in terms of risk of long-term pain. And uh, there's not a big improvement with minimally invasive there. With enhanced recovery pathways, which we've used extensively at University of Virginia, we've been able to overcome some of those chronic pain issues and actually level the playing field where minimally invasive and open surgery have the exact same outcomes. And so the way I look at this is which is going to give me the best cancer operation. And I choose that approach for the cancer treatment and spend less time thinking about the incision. It's a great point. Good perspective there. If we go back to our case, this was a stage 2A, uh, I'm sorry, stage T2A, N2. This is stage 3A, non-small cell lung cancer. Got three cycles of neoadjuvant nivolumab plus carboplatin paclitaxel. That's the FDA-approved Checkmate 816 regimen. Partial response on CT and so underwent right lower lobectomy. Pathology, though, showed a complete response. No viable tumor, and we know that occurs in about 24% of patients a year. Pathologic CR. Do you offer any more therapy here? So that's that's a great question. There's no uh, definite data. We we know that these patients have a very good outcome. So the potential benefit of any additional treatment is probably quite low. And I tend to not offer any additional treatment at this point. Uh, besides, I have to say, uh, as Linda mentioned, I'm a bit concerned of only three cycles of chemotherapy. So I sometimes offer another cycle of, of chemotherapy just to feel that I've done everything I can in terms of the, the data we have about adjuvant chemotherapy. But the question about uh, further adjuvant immunotherapy is an open question. As, as we all know, there are studies reported of uh, perioperative treatment. So both neoadjuvant and adjuvant treatment with good results, but I have to say they look quite, uh, they don't look like a, a very different result from the neoadjuvant only uh, checkmate 816. So uh, I'm not sure it's necessary. We, we don't know. The study that can prove who should get uh, adjuvant immunotherapy after a response to neoadjuvant immunotherapy would be quite complex, but uh, I hope it will be done. Uh, we need to randomize those that got uh, pathological complete response to adjuvant or not, and those that did not get to pathological complete response to also randomize them. So uh, that that would be the required study. That's a, a big trial, but an important question. Linda, UVA, similar approach? Uh, yes. So far, we haven't always offered adjuvant therapy with there's a, when there's a pathologic complete response, but I'll emphasize again, we try to put patients with N2 disease on our clinical trial, AFT46, 
which does include a year of adjuvant therapy. The Nadim 2 trial, which was just published, is very compelling, showing these tremendous outcomes. But so far, all of the what I would call sandwich trials with pre- and post-op therapy have not matured enough for us to really see the impact of the adjuvant therapy and to know how much that's additive beyond the pre-treatment strategy or pre-operative strategy. So it's an unknown question at this time. Even if we just do cross-trial comparison, it's a little early to do that. I do feel like in a stage three and two patient, it really feels inadequate to just do three upfront treatment surgery and stop. That just <laughs> it sort of hurts me to think about that. It just seems like not enough treatment for such a challenging disease space. But whether it's more cytotoxic therapy, whether it's immunotherapy, whether it's radiation, hard to answer. It seems like radiation's been taken off the list with the lung art trial coming out as a negative study or even potentially harmful. Um, so what is the best strategy? It's hard to answer. And I'll just mention another topic I've heard brought up many times to which there's no answer is if you had a path CR, so we know that chemo immunotherapy was effective, should you keep using it because you know it's effective in that patient? Or do you say if they had a non-complete response, should you keep using the strategy that yielded a suboptimal response? So, you know, I'm sure you guys tangle with these questions as oncologists, but this is something that a lot of us have been scratching our heads about. No, there's there's great arguments on both sides that are totally logical, and, and we don't know. Uh, but yeah, here let's let's ask you directly. I mean, what if this was less than a pathologic CR? Do you combine strategies? Do you give more immunotherapy in that space? So uh, practically, we don't have that uh, reimbursed uh, in Israel, so we don't theoretically. Um, or if a patient uh, has the ability to to fund a uh, such an expensive, extremely expensive treatment. If there's less than a pathological complete response, I would consider adding more just because this is what we can do. There's nothing else I can do besides adding adjuvant treatment. So uh, that that would be my, my thoughts about this. Linda, um, you know, are there some cases where you know, they, they seem eligible for new adjuvant therapy, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, for for various reasons, you would prefer to take directly to resection, where new adjuvant chemoimmunotherapy certainly would be an option. Uh, but you know, as a surgeon, you think, well, I, I feel that we should go directly to surgery and think about treatment in the adjuvant setting. At stage three, no, I would still push heavily for neoadjuvant. I have had this situation come up in some stage two patients, and a few times we've opted to go to the operating first operating room first. And the reasons were when it took six or nine months from initial symptom or diagnosis to get to me, and it's felt like such a prolonged time to get to surgery. And we know that surgery is such an important aspect of stage two treatment. I've sometimes opted to go to the operating room first. I also had a recent case where the patient had substantial autoimmune disease. We didn't have proof of N1 disease, but we had suspicion of it. And we didn't want to subject the patient to neoadjuvant therapy if they really were just stage one, and then they were going to have side effects. So careful discussion with one of my medical oncology colleagues about that, that we opted to do surgery first. I'm also mindful of the idea that if I do surgery first, that the likelihood they're going to complete a full 16 months of adjuvant therapy on, say, a 
Empower 10 regimen is not really high. And so we got to think about that aspect of compliance as well. So it's it's a it's a challenging situation, but you've got to think about all of the ramifications along the way. Yeah, this is definitely a discussion that needs to be had with the surgeon, medical oncologist together. You know, there are cases where a surgeon might say, you know, today it's it's a lower segment, but a little bit of change, this becomes a very complex operation. We gotta we gotta factor those things in. Those are hard to to tease out of large studies, right? So you know, we think of, of lung cancer, as you mentioned, sometimes the, the diagnosis is a bit delayed and, and patients often are, are very anxious. Um, there's a lot of stress and anxiety, I think, that rightfully comes with this diagnosis. There are a lot of patients that are very eager to move forward with surgery right away that, that you know, will, will come to your office, Linda, and want surgery tomorrow. Uh, Yair, you know, when you think about some of the neoadjuvant PEMBRO studies you've led in the past, when you think about using Checkmate 816 in this setting, do you find that patients are receptive to neoadjuvant therapy knowing that it's going to delay the surgery? Basically, I think it, it totally depends on the way things are presented and explained to the patient it, because there's very good logic in, in what we're doing now with the neoadjuvant treatments. And, and it's, it's, I think that's the bottom line. There is an issue of general uh, perception uh, the idea of neoadjuvant treatment for lung cancer is not as well recognized and accepted as for breast cancer, for example. Uh, so that that can be an issue, but but many people are absolutely not aware of any of that and would just uh, want to hear the the recommendation of the of the surgeon and and the oncologist. And if the surgeon would recommend neoadjuvant treatment, I think that that would that would be that would work. That that's the that's the challenge we have, I think, now uh, in this uh, field of trying to uh, implement neoadjuvant whenever is relevant. Well, we definitely need the the surgeons' support here. But but Linda, when you meet with the surgeons, I'm sure you know patients want surgery right away as soon as you can. So do you find that patients are a little hesitant to pursue a, a neoadjuvant therapy? It's all in how we present it to the patient. And I'll use the example that as thoracic surgeons, we have this conversation all the time with our esophageal cancer patients. Practically nobody goes straight to the operating room with esophageal cancer. And we meet with them often before treatment commences and then after neoadjuvant. And we're used to that conversation and it's the norm. And it's a matter of just bringing that mindset into the lung cancer arena and you know, making sure that our surgical uh, colleagues are educated on the importance of these neoadjuvant strategies and that this becomes the standard of care. It's also a matter of educating referring providers so that they don't think you're doing something crazy or out of the ordinary by offering neoadjuvant first uh, and that it shifts practice patterns and referrals and things like that. But again, we're used to doing this in esophagus and it's a matter of just incorporating it into our lung practices uh, much more frequently than we have in the past. You know, there's, there's a lot of other things I wanted to get to. We didn't talk about what to do in driver positive cancers and other borderline cases, but we, we are out of time for this episode. So uh, I want to thank the two prestigious guests we've had on today for, you know, the generosity with their time and expertise and for all their continued work. These are two that are really pushing the field forward. And, and so thank you for that. Yair, thanks for, for taking the time with us today. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Linda. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Yes, Linda, thank you for for joining us today. I know you're busy. Yeah. Thank you all for the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. 
And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can download new episodes, and we hope that you'll tune in on the first and third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 